Fuzzy Logic. We're going to be talking bees. We're going to be talking driverless cars. We're going to be talking cuttlefish. A whole lot of science that's been uh, new this week and more coming up for your science on a Sunday right here on Fuzzy Logic. Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. Roderick here with you for another week of science news, science stories, all that's going on in the world of science. Thanks very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand. Some lovely Irish music to get us relaxed on a Sunday morning. But for now, it's uh, time to get into the world of science. And to help me out with that today, I have the wonderful Jill joining me in the studio. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Broderick. How are you this morning? Yes, feeling lovely. It's a sunny day, so can't be upset. No, that's right. A sciencey week for you? Yeah, always a sciencey week. <laughs> can't get past it, but, you know, science is involved in everything. So when I was cooking, you know, doing some science, <laughs> mixing my cocktails, it's like mixing a potion. It's all science. I, I don't think potions count as science. But mixing a cocktail is mixing solutions. It is. Let's, let's keep the chemistry in it. Cocktail. Cocktails <laughs> definitely are a solution to something. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, we're going to jump straight into the show today. We've got a bunch of uh, different stories lined up for you. Um, but part of what I wanted to do today was share a couple of uh, real-world, uh, real-life science stories. And to help us out with that this morning, I do have uh, Kale on the phone. Kale Matthews, good morning. Morning. How are you? Well, thanks. Well, thanks. Now, Carl is a, an honours student at Flinders University down at the School of Biology and uh, brought you on board to tell us a little bit about your research this morning. So you've been working on your honours for the past year, Carl. Uh, what yep. has your research been focusing on? Um, so most of my research, uh, I've been actually lucky enough to get to go across to Fiji and uh, work on a native bee genus. Uh, over in Fiji called Homolictus. Um, so basically I got to travel across to Fiji, sample a whole bunch of uh, bee specimens and bring them back over and see if we've got new species, okay. um, which was very cool, very yeah. exciting. So the Homolictus is a, an interest, is a bee species that's native to, to Fiji. How does it compare to the yep. bees we have here in Australia? Uh, well, Homolictus is native to Fiji, and it's also um, native to Australia. So you've got uh, Homolictus spread throughout the throughout the world, and um, we've got stacks of species over in Australia. Um, but what we were finding in Fiji was that there was only about four described species uh, of this of this genus. And what we found in recent years is that we've actually got upwards of about twenty five. Um, different species all up in the highlands of Fiji that had, had never really been discovered before. Um, so that was that was really interesting, and that's what I was looking at was uh, why there was so many species restricted to these highland areas. Right, very interesting. Well, before we dive into that, uh, those sorts of species, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about uh, how you were going about sampling them, because I imagine the the highlands of Fiji aren't where the uh, tourist resorts are and that sort of thing. Um, so, no, how, that's right. <laughs> what was it like up there in terms of collecting? How are you going about it? 
it was it was interesting. Um, <laughs> so basically, uh, what we did was we were based uh, in Suva, and then we hired some four-wheel drives and um, made our way up into the highlands on these dirt roads, rickety roads, um, and basically we did all of our sampling from roadsides with sweep nets. So whenever we'd find a, a nice, lush, uh, lots of flowers area, we'd jump out the car, start sweeping our nets, and if we uh, got any bees, we'd stay there for about 30 minutes. If not, we'd jump back in the car, start driving up the road again, up, up further into the, the mountains, so to speak, uh, and start sweeping again when we found another good spot. Yeah, right. And what sort of uh, vegetation are we looking at there? Is it rainforest or very green uh, and lush? It's very dense, very green, very lush. Um, not necessarily rainforest, but uh, it actually gets a lot, a lot cooler and drier when you get up into the into the highland region. So um, a lot of a lot of green, green, lush bushes, but not a whole lot of trees. Okay, okay. And are many people living up in that part of Fiji? Um, yep, so we actually stayed in a, a small village called Navai, which was um, at the base of the tallest mountain in Fiji. So the tallest mountain in Fiji was about 1,300 metres, um, and Navai was sitting at about 900 metres. And there's lots of these little small villages sort of scattered around um, the inland rural areas, Um You've got the main cities of Suva and Nandi, but um, there's, there's a lot of small villages all scattered throughout these highland areas that we'd pass through and um, chat to the locals there. They were always very interested in, in what we were doing. And when we said we were searching bees, they'd run off and go and pick up a honeybee with their bare hands or something like that to show us. And they go, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good, but uh, no, we're looking for these small little ones. But yeah, there's, there's lots of uh, small little villages scattered around. Yeah, right. And I imagine um, that's uh, not not a place that uh, many non-Fijians would visit either. So you must have been quite a novelty. Yes, for sure, for sure. We were um, the talk of the town, so to speak. And um, it was good in a way because when we're in the Vi, um, we're we're providing them with with a lot of income because we're paying to stay there. We pay them um, to cook food for us. So they were really excited to have us come in because. Uh, it means they get to to earn a bit of money with a big group of us coming and staying. Um, it's a big source of income for them, so they were really happy. Um, hey, and you got to, to eat in. local food as well. That's right, delicious food. I don't know how that the cooking equipment and everything was very basic, but they come out with this beautiful breakfast, and we had homemade pancakes, homemade donuts, and whatnot for breakfast. It was it was amazing. Fantastic. That sounds like a, a bit too luxurious for what should be, you know, out in the middle of oh, nowhere camping. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They they treated us very nicely. Good. Right. And so you're out there for a couple of weeks collecting yep. bees, um, and yep. uh, you, you found a whole lot of new species out there that you weren't mm-hmm. expecting. Um, yep. What does that mean for for your research? What's that telling us? Um, so. We've been uh, for the past four years across the Fiji, uh, and every time we go back, we're finding more and more species. But what we're finding is that they're restricted above 800 meters. Um, so what I found in my research, which is my fun little stat, was that 
over 60% of all of Fiji's native beef water is restricted to 2% of the land area. Um, so right. this is having serious implications in terms of climate change because um, what it seems to be, what we're finding is that they're restricted by very small climatic niches. So they're uh, adapted to this small climatic niche and they kind of follow that up or down as it moves. So um, what what they're doing is they're very... When it's the glacial maxima, um, they're able to move down into the lowlands many, many years ago. These highland-restricted bees were able to move down into the lowlands as the lowlands cooled. But uh, when we're in glacial minima, which is what we're in at the moment, their climatic niche moves back up the mountains uh, into these very small areas. So um, and, as the and climate keeps... And so, yeah, with the glacial maxima and minima, you're talking about warming and cooling there? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So warming and cooling period. Yeah. So as we're in a warming period at the moment, uh, if it keeps warming, they're going to have to keep moving up uh, and and there's not a whole lot of space to move up into. Right, and that, so that uh, that could be a big blow for the biodiversity there if, uh, that's right, if yeah. they get stuck up in the top of that mountain. That's it, yeah. Right, and does that uh, do those sort of findings uh, can they be applied to what's happening here in Australia too? Yeah, definitely. So um, one of our PhD students um, is is looking at the same sort of thing in Australia. He's looking at uh, elevational gradients of, of homolictus uh, throughout Australia and seeing if that pattern kind of uh, extends extends to our country and whether. These bees are, are following this climatic niche where they're getting forced up higher and higher with, with a warming climate. Um, so we have to wait for his findings to see if that sort of thing extends to Australia. Yeah, right. And I guess the, um, the interesting thing would be, obviously, uh, if we do lose these bees, um, mm-hmm. we don't... Uh, do we know what sort of effect that would have? I mean, losing any species is always a bad thing, but is there any uh, direct effect that you can uh, see at the moment? Well, in, in Fiji in particular, these homolictus bees, uh, they're very generalist species, so they pollinate a wide range uh, of native flora over there. And so if, if we're losing um, much of, much of their, their plants that they're pollinating, uh, that can have serious effects for, for things that eat those plants. Um, in, in terms of other pollinators in Fiji, you've got honeybees, um, which dominate a lot of the lowlands, but they don't pollinate such a wide range of, of plants that the uh, Fijian homolictus do. So it certainly has effects for the, the native flora over there. Yeah, and, and then the ongoing effects from the flora into the fauna and That's so on. Right. It really is a... Uh, uh, well, I mean, we say food chain, but it's almost uh, like yeah. a tower at this stage. And if you take out That's the bottom it. bricks of bees, bottom up effect, yeah, yeah. And I can imagine the same thing here in Australia. You know, a lot of the times when we That's start right. talking about bees here, we bring up uh, plants like avocados and other fruits that are highly dependent on bee pollination. Yeah. Um, that uh, that could be affected if we suddenly have a drop in that population. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so your your research has uh, has concluded for the year. You've handed up your honours yep. thesis. Uh, do you know what's going to continue on into the future with the, that area of research down at Flinders University? Uh, yeah, so uh, we we will go back 
back again next year uh, and keep exploring new regions of Fiji to see if we can keep uncovering um, why there's so many species up in the highlands. We have a, a bit of an idea now, but the, the, the idea is getting clearer and clearer each time we go back. Um, and we're also extending our research into butterflies in Fiji. We have a new honours student uh, who's coming into the lab next year who's looking at um, butterfly diversity over in Fiji and uh, and there hasn't really been many uh, many uh, exhaustive descriptions of the of the Fijian butterflies, so that's what she's looking into uh, over there. Well, that would be quite interesting to to hear some more about that. Are butterflies are pollinators in a similar way to bees. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, similar sorts of effects there. Very interesting that's right. indeed. And are you going to try yeah. and get yourself on uh, one of those trips again to get out to Fiji? Yeah, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind. It's pretty nice. Pretty nice way to to, to research. You get to go across to this nice, beautiful tropical island. Um, but it's a, it's a pretty full trip at the moment. I'll have to, uh, you know, wrangle a few, pull a few strings, and see what I can do to get across. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it sounds like some uh, really interesting research, and uh, it's it's great to hear what's going on. And it's, I mean, it's there's a lot of uh, different effects of climate change that we really don't know about at this point in time. You know, we know it's happening, right. but it's uh, yeah. really interesting to hear what that means for you. Um, I remember a little while ago on Fuzzy Logic, we had someone talking about their research, uh, also from Flinders Uni, actually, and they were talking about their work on the beaches, looking at how um, different uh, mollusks there moved around on the rocks in different heat situations. And, you know, he was finding a sort of similar thing, that the the increased heat that we're getting means the mollusks move in different ways and just trying to understand that to 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 see what it means and I think that's a, a similar thing that you're doing here with the bees yeah, sure. is just understanding where they're going to move which is uh, really interesting yeah. stuff yeah that's right and we we will be extending the bee stuff as well next year we're doing trying to get some uh, thermal coloration studies happening where we um, do manipulative physio- physiological experiments with them in terms of um, looking at the highland bees and trying to work out um, just how much temperature change they can withstand uh, before before they start to to uh, die off, unfortunately. But um, that that involves kind of putting them in these uh, these thermal toleration kits, so to speak, uh, and, and seeing what sort of temperature range that, that they can adapt to. Um, so that's something we're looking into doing next year as well. Right, and so is that something you'd be testing on the ground in Fiji, or are you bringing bees back here to Australia? Yeah, so testing on the ground in Fiji, we're we're working through the logistics at the moment because um, it 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 is very tough to to get thermal toleration gear into the highlands of Fiji. Um, we think it can be done, but uh, there are a lot of factors that affect it. But if we can test them in there. Um, in their home, so to speak, and that'll give us a good indication of uh, exactly how much uh, thermal tolerance they have, uh, and that'll give us a good indicator moving forward um, how much they can withstand. Fantastic stuff. Well, we'll have to uh, get you or one of the team back in, Carl, to discuss that when uh, that research comes through and uh, learn how uh, whether bees can handle the heat and, and how the butterflies yeah. are going too. 
For sure. Uh, Sounds good. Wonderful. Well, thanks very much for sharing with us on Fuzzy Logic this morning, Kale. No worries. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. So it's uh, Kale Matthews there, an honours student at Flinders University at the School of Biological Sciences, joining us here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, the time is 11.25. You're on 98.3 FM, 2XXFM Community Radio, and uh, it is your community radio. If you enjoy listening to 2XXFM, make sure you're a subscriber. We are people-powered radio, which means we do rely on subscriptions to help support what we're doing. You can subscribe at 2xxfm.org.au, uh, which is also where you can stream online if for some reason you pass out of our little broadcast range. Uh, you can uh, hear more from us in within that range. Before we went to the song, we were talking with Kyle Matthews from Flinders University and uh, about his honours research into bees around Fiji and what that means for our climate and that side of things. And I've got uh, Jill with me in the studio uh, who is uh, sharing, uh, here to share some science with us today. And uh, I thought uh, what well, was really interesting to hear Kyle uh, share some of his story about uh, science in the field. And I found an interesting story about uh, cuttlefish this week and uh, their um, skin uh, blendings and the way they blend in with their surrounding. And so I thought uh, this could be a great opportunity for Jill and I to share some of our, well, it wasn't really science, it was more of a holiday. <laughs> You can science on a holiday. You can, you can. And I, I guess it was interesting. We were making our own little observations um, of uh, what was going on uh, out there when we dived, uh, when we snorkelled down at Wyala earlier this year. Uh, what was going on in Wyala, Jill? Well, in Wyala each year, um, there is an aggregation of giant cuttlefish and they turn up there because it's the best place to mate. It's like everyone turning up to a dodgy hotel. <laughs> That's the dodgy hotel. Point Lowly in South Australia. Point Lowly. And it's very well signed too in South <laughs> Australia. Not so much for the cuttlefish, but for people who want to come there and check it out. Uh, there's nothing voyeuristic. Well, there is slight, something slightly voyeuristic about <laughs> it, I guess, diving in there. You can scuba dive or you can just snorkel. It's not particularly deep water. You know, you're looking at about two to four metres for the most part. And uh, you can get in there and see some of the cuttlefish action. Yeah, so there's about, you know, thousands of cuttlefish descend on this area every year. And the mating displays that they put on are just mind-blowing. So you get in the water and you're sort of like, oh, yeah, maybe we'll see a couple of cuttlefish. There's hundreds. They're just everywhere and they're doing all sorts of different things. So you've got the females, you've got the large males, and then you've got the small males. And they all have different roles to play in this little love game that they have going on. That's right. That's right. Well, the female, the males are there, obviously trying to mate with the females and put uh, their. Now, I'm going to say their package. It's their sperm sac. Sperm sac inside the woman, uh, which is how cuttlefish mate. It's very romantic. It is. He has a hectocotylus, which is his special um, mating arm. So all male um, cephalopods have this. So that's octopus, squids, and cuttlefish. And what he does is he pretty much shoves that up her nose. <laughs> so so romantic. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it brings a tear to the eye. Um, primarily, really, because it seems uncomfortable. Yeah. But, so cuttlefish have these things called siphons on the side of their head, which is where they suck the water in and out 
to go past their gills. So it's their breathing hole. It's not their mouth that's separate, but it's where they breathe. So they don't breathe through their mouth. They breathe through the siphons. And that is the hole that also gets to their internal organs. So that's where he puts it. So he shoves it right up in there and then he protects her. So this was an interesting thing that we saw. There'd often be a female sort of hiding underneath the rock and there would be a large male protecting her. And he does that because if she mates with someone else, she can dispose of his sperm sac and take someone else's. Right, so if you want your genetic code to continue on in the world of cuttlefish, if you want to be a, a you know, that's, and that's part of the whole point of reproduction yeah. is uh, males want to protect their genetic code and keep it going, then you have to protect your woman. Yeah. You stop her throwing those that little sperm package away. Yeah, so you've got to make sure that she doesn't mate with anyone else. So it's not like, you know, with people, you know, it's a bit different. You don't have that <laughs> choice. But with this cuttlefish, they do, and she can hold on to it for up to three months. So they've actually got to, like, watch her for a little while. And some of the interesting things that we snor- saw while snorkeling with them was there would be one male protecting this female, and then there's five small males just hanging out on the edges, just nearby, just waiting for him to drop his guard. And so one would sneak in, and he'd scare that one off. And then while he's scaring that one off, the other one would sneak in, and he'd have to scare that one off. And so he's constantly just battling these other males trying to get to his female. And it's really interesting to watch because the females are kind of down in this crevicey rock uh, floor that's on the ocean bottom. And so there's lots of different holes for them to hide in there. And because they're quite flexible creatures too, they can fit into some pretty small spaces. So she's sort of down in this uh, small hole in the rocks and sometimes hard to see too. Sometimes you're not sure whether they're actually protecting anything down there. <laughs> uh, but she is down there as this big male is going backwards and forwards and you know sometimes it's a little bit slow and then someone will get too close and he'll just swoosh put those tentacles straight go streamlined and straight towards another small cuttlefish in there but i think one of the most fascinating things that i've always thought about cuttlefish and i finally got to see it when we went snorkeling is the cross-dressing males (laughs) so the small males and this is where you know a little bit of brains comes in over brawn the smaller males they're never going to outfight the larger males they're just not so what they do is they actually use their um, camouflage techniques to, in, you know, to copy and look like a female. Mm-hmm. So then the bit large male's like, hey, yeah, this sounds good. Yep, second female and you pop, off you go. When it's actually a second male and he comes in and does the sneaky mate behind the back. <laughs> so it's, I do like that the, you know, the brains wins out over the brawn. I think it's an important mm-hmm. thing to happen. Yeah, and there's there's lots of interesting things going on down there too in terms of um, males sizing up because we've been talking about the small males trying to get uh, in behind the big male, but when there's two big males trying to go after the same female, they'll actually size each other up to see uh, who's going to get the female. And doing that, they actually line up against each other. And so sometimes it's uh, mantle to mantle, eye to eye, and then other times it's a bit more like a yin-yang type situation. But they're, they're trying to size each other up to work out which one's bigger. And all the while that they're doing this, the, the big cuttlefish mantle, and if you imagine, you know how you see the cuttlefish on the beach listers and you see the big white uh, cuttle bone um, in there, which isn't a bone, Jill? It is, is, a, bone, it is a bone, but it's not technically a skeletal bone. Bones. Yeah. So it's made of calcium. Right. Um, 
but it's actually a buoyancy device. Yeah, and so uh, in the water there, that kind of makes up the majority of the cuttlefish body, and then from that you have the eyes and the head part and then the tentacles coming out from there. Yeah, well, that's what cephalopod means. It means head foot. Yeah. So essentially their body doesn't work the way ours do. Uh, You know, we've got our head, our body, and our legs. They've got legs, head, body. Yeah. Their head foot. So they're head foots. Yeah. So head foot. Quite amazing structure there. But these, uh, the the cuddle bone, their their big bodies sizing against each other. And what they do is they have the the colour on them, and the colours can vary quite a bit. So you can see sort of greens and blues. You can see blacks and whites. You can see purples, uh, teal, cyan pulsating in there. And as they're sizing each other up against these colours, you have this dappled dark and light pattern going across their body and it's moving so you'd almost think it was the shadow of the water on the sand underneath but it's actually them controlling the chromatophores within their body to change these colors and it's this pulsating color against each other here that they're doing and that's how they size off against each other like two peacocks showcasing their (laughs) giant tails these cuttlefish are pulsating colors against each other to show which one is the better male and we watched many males size up against each other and I don't know how they did it, but they would. They would just pulsate for a while, sometimes 30 seconds, sometimes minutes, and then eventually one would just swim off. And clearly the other one had won because that male got to remain behind with the female there. But how they won, I do not know. <laughs> uh, but it was amazing to see. Uh, but one of my favourite moments watching that uh, that fight happen uh, which is a very non-violent fight I think it's quite good it's almost like the cockiness before the fight and then they never actually punch each other Uh, (laughs) but was watching these two big males pulsating against each other meanwhile in the background the female has come out her little cave where she was and is mating with a small male right behind them uh, (laughs) behind their back and they're too busy pulsating against each other to notice this mating happen in the background and the way they can control their chromatophores is Exceptional because you can actually see one. He'll have a female on his left, he'll have a male that's competing on his right, and he'll have split down the middle, chromatophores on the left showing like mating display for the female, chromatophores on his right showing a get lost signal to the male. So he can actually, and it's literally like you could draw a line down the middle. It's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, we watched one cuttlefish at one point going from a, a rocky bottom to a white sandy bottom area and uh, it was sort of uh, it was isolated on its own and I think it sort of realised that we were there and it went, oh no, there's a big uh, something there, I've got to get away from it. And so it was on the dark rocks and, uh, you know, quite dark in colour and then as it pushed itself out quite quickly, it went over the white sand and just suddenly... <laughs> changed over into white and almost disappeared like we knew where it was because we could see it but had it stopped for a moment onto that sand it almost would have uh, just been uh, completely gone yeah. uh, with its amazing camouflage techniques and uh, that's some of the research that's actually come out this week that prompted uh, my thoughts on this uh, published in nature on the 17th of october they're actually looking at the way cuttlefish 
are blending their appearance into their surroundings to help track their brain activity. Uh, so it's neuroscientists at the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, they built a system of 20 video cameras to film cuttlefish at 60 frames a second as they swam around their enclosures. And the cameras captured the cuttlefish changing colour as they passed by backgrounds of different printed images. So sometimes it would be gravel on the ground, but sometimes they had printed images that the researchers placed in the tanks. And uh, the research, the recording actually began soon after the cuttlefish hatched and continued for weeks. Um, and so they processed these, uh, this using uh, video processing techniques to identify tens of thousands of individual chromatophores, so these colour changing cells on each cuttlefish including cells that actually emerged as the animal grew larger over time. So obviously as it gets bigger, it needs more of these chromatophores. And the team used statistical tools to determine how different chromatophores act in synchrony uh, to change the animal's overall skin patterns. Obviously, uh, within nature, within animals, all the time, there's looking at shortcuts, so how we can control uh, things in the simplest possible way with our brain. And uh, previous studies to this had shown that each chromatophore was controlled by multiple motor neurons that reach from the brain to the muscles, and that each motor neuron controls uh, several chromatophores. Uh, so these in turn group together into larger motor systems that create patterns across the cuttlefish body. And the latest study actually maps how the animal links chromatophores together in different ways to create that pattern that mimics the geometry of its surroundings. So basically it knows that on different patterns it can uh, determine pathways through its brain to control its camouflage on its body. And uh, this imaging technique kind of gives you the neural data, so the data in the brain by proxy. So they can follow what's going on in the body to work out what's going on in the cuttlefish brain and uh, try and work out what's actually making them tick. Now, basically, you're seeing the inner workings of the cuttlefish brain reflected on the skin without cutting the animal open, attaching electrodes to it, or training it to behave in a certain way. And I think that this will help researchers to understand the links between brain activity and behaviour. Because uh, right now, uh, the researchers say the link between what the cuttlefish sees and what it actually sends to its motor neurons is a mystery. And so the, prob the answer probably lies in the brain, which processes both the input from the eyes and the output again back to the chromatophores to create this geometrical pattern that resembles the cuttlefish surrounding. And uh, so it's quite interesting stuff. And... Uh, Look, analysing the cuttlefish brain will, of course, help us to analyse how human brains fit together as well and how we process uh, senses from our inputs, such as our eyes, skin, uh, other senses, and put them in through as outputs into what we actually do. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And the way that cuttlefish um, can sense their surroundings, and even if it's an unknown surrounding, I remember seeing a video a while ago, they put a checkerboard pattern underneath like so they did all these natural like rocks and sand and things and then they put a checkerboard pattern which the cuttlefish has never seen in its life and it did its best to copy it <laughs> it wasn't perfect but yeah. although i wonder how many times the cuttlefish just completely gets it wrong it's just like oh yeah i'm on rocks oh i'm pink and it's like you know the ground's not pink and how many times they actually just they get it wrong yeah well, or if they ever do 
yeah, I don't know. And I guess that would uh, potentially be part of that learning phase uh, that, uh, that the animal would go through is to work out uh, how it changes colour and that sort of thing. Yeah. As a, as a small baby cuttlefish, you know, there's always going to be learning periods, but maybe it does uh, also just come innately, so innately that uh, it just kind of happens there. Yeah, but you think that, you know, there's things that we innately do and then sometimes you just get it wrong. That's true. Like you try and take a drink and you spill it all over yourself. <laughs> Like, it happened. Yeah, but it would be quite interesting to see. And that was the great thing about seeing the cuttlefish where we were, was because they were trying to mate with each other, they weren't trying to camouflage that often. No. And so they were really quite obvious and quite beautifully glowing creatures uh, through there that we could see. Uh, and, in fact, look, I'm going to share one of our photos that we took on the Facebook page because why not? Um <laughs> Because they are amazing, amazing creatures, uh, these cuttlefish that we saw. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on FM Community Radio, Broderick and Jill in the studio. And today we've been sharing some field work stories, some stories out in the field. Uh, we had uh, Kale Matthews on air earlier talking about his work in the field in Fiji, looking at bees. Uh, we just shared some stories about cuttlefish that Jill and I had from our little trip on the road. Uh, but happening uh, out there in the real world, a bunch of other people doing some research, and you had an interesting one from uh, up north. Yeah, up in the Northern Territory. So this is not necessarily um, a group of scientists out doing field work, but a, team, a group of students, so what we like to call citizen scientists, which is an important part of science these days because scientists can't be everywhere, so we need to get you know other people involved, and these students have taken up this challenge. And... The fieldwork they've been doing is the things of nightmares. This is my worst fears come true. Like, it's almost like it's Halloween on Wednesday, and this is the scariest thing that's probably going to happen all week to me. Because they've been looking at tarantulas. For one, I wasn't fully aware we had tarantulas in Australia, so. That was a big shock to me. Look, just be glad they're up north. They're not down here. I can't guarantee anything now, okay? Yeah. Because. These tarantulas, they're not just, you know, regular climbing in holes, climbing trees tarantulas. They're swimming tarantulas. <laughs> it is no longer safe to go in the water. Like, Jaws, take a back seat. We've got tarantulas. Uh, actually, I remember my first time on the River Murray. It wasn't a swimming spider. It was a swimming snake. And just watching that slither across the surface of the water. And that made me slightly worried because I thought I was okay in the water from, from most snakes. And then I'm like, oh, no, that's no good. But now we've got swimming spiders now as well. Now we've got swimming spiders. So um, this was actually in a tiny town called Maningrida. Maningrida? Maningrida. Maningrida, beautiful. Yeah. And it's got a population of only 2,000 people. But they are now on the world stage in science because they have this... Um, these tarantulas that swim that have never been seen anywhere before. So there's actually been an arach arachnologist. Sorry, Ar arachnologist. Arachnologist. Yep. Sunday morning, can't pronounce things. <laughs> um, Robert Raven from the Queensland Museum, he's described countless trapdoor funnel webs and tarantulas, and he was gobsmacked by these spiders. So it actually shocked someone who studies spiders for a living. Um so he surveyed the area when the species was discovered in 2006. It was a new species found not that long ago. Well, 12 years, but it doesn't feel that long ago. Um, and he photographed the 66 burrows over a few paces, so they're quite tightly together. Um, so he said that the spiders, 
coat themselves with a thin mercury-like layer of bubbles in order to breathe underwater. So they don't have gills or anything like fish, but they actually coat themselves in bubbles and they can use those bubbles to breathe underwater. Um, so years after the headlines, the knowledge of this species become is patchy. So there's not much knowledge about it because it's in a remote floodplain. It's in wild buffalo and pig country. It's not easy to get to. So scientists are having some trouble. Um, the, the species actually still hasn't been described. So you find a species um, and then you have to actually take it back to the the lab and sit down and write a proper description and submit that with a name and they haven't done that yet so this species isn't technically a species yet because scientifically it hasn't been given its full scientific description yeah it's pretty amazing work uh, by these folks up in Manangrida yeah so the students um, took up this task they were like this amazing thing is happening in our town let's find out more what can we do so they've actually um, set up their own little like tank like replicated the floodplains in the classroom <laughs> so they've set up tanks with water and they're putting the tarantulas in them so they've got tarantulas in their classroom that they're testing um, and they go out actually into the habitat and test the spiders so they're using cameras and collection methods and things like that to learn more about what they're doing um, so, so they dig the spiders out of the burrow and they've actually come up with their own cool way of doing it. So they found if they dangled an insect inside, like a grasshopper on a little fishing line, the tarantula would grab the grasshopper and then you can pull it out. So they're fishing for tarantulas. Like, <laughs> I'm just... Um, and yeah, so now they can actually um, use an endoscope that they attach to the phone. They can feed cameras into the burrows because they live in quite twisted burrows, so it's not just like a little straight thing and they can um they don't destroy the burrows because it's a bendable camera and they can actually film these spiders and they've got proper si proper footage that is you know blowing the scientific world away so these are the only researchers that are regularly studying the species the students so without the students work this species would be completely unknown we'd have no idea about what it's doing um yeah so it's an amazing thing that you might think, oh, I don't have a science degree, I can't do science. That's not true at all. Mm. Everyone can do it. I'm not suggesting anyone goes out and sticks cameras down holes. <laughs> Please, no. I'm sure you know what you're doing. But, don't try this at home. Yeah, that's right, slowly but surely. But, yeah, that's right. Really, all scientists are just people with a curious uh, nature to want to discover more. Um, and I, I love this example that also came out recently recently. Uh, the headless chicken sea monster uh, that was discovered. And this one is kind of the reverse. This one was discovered by scientists, but the scientists had no idea what they found. And they were almost, they were just as clueless, like, what's going on here? So they, it's uh, filmed as part of the Australian Antarctic Division down in the depths of the Southern Ocean. Uh, they filmed what's uh, the deep sea sea cucumber Enipnastes eximia, which is also known as the headless chicken monster. Um, but it was sighted using new underwater cameras uh, deployed by fishing boats operating in Antarctica. And uh, the research scientist, uh, Dirk Wellsford, uh, said uh, it was found floating three kilometres below the surface, just off Heard Island. And it was a real surprise. And this is the quote I love here. Uh, Dr. Wellsford said, We'd never seen this thing before. At the time, none of us actually knew what it was. So we did what a lot of scientists do and Googled it. <laughs> 
this is the genuine thing. Scientists are just normal people. Uh, the students in Manangrida are scientists. Scientists who've been studying for years are just normal people as well. They don't know what's going on. They need to find out. They start with a great spot, which is Google, uh, to work out what's happening there. They'd probably there. start with an educated Google. They wouldn't be like, purple thing in the ocean. But, no, I reckon they would. They didn't even have like a... An inkling of, like, the phylum? Well, potentially. They might have known it was a sea cucumber, but, I mean, Google's pretty good at finding things like that. Like, I remember I did that a little while ago for a friend who posted on Facebook, like, what is this bug? <laughs> and I've got a bunch of entomologist friends, and so did this friend, and they were going there, and I'm like, uh, you know, it's been a couple of hours, no one's posted anything. So I literally Googled bug with yellow and black stripes. Was that me? I think it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I remember posting what bug is this. Yeah, and... And and it came up with some options on Google, so I just dived in a little bit further and found a couple of bug options and then narrowed it down. I'm like, well, where was Jill posting this from? It was down the south coast, so therefore it has to be, you know, found in New South Wales and eventually found a bug that matched it pretty well just by Googling. Um, and, you know, so that's, uh, that's why uh, anyone can really be a scientist uh, here. And, uh, yeah, this headless chicken sea monster, bright purple plankton-eating organism, has bat-like wings as large as a basketball, only filmed once before in the Gulf of Mexico last year. It's, I mean, look, the headless chicken monster is not an official name, but (laughs) it kind of communicates what this thing actually is. I might post it on our Facebook page later today. Uh, You have to. It is an amazing-looking creature. And sea cucumbers are pretty cool, like, they're pretty cool on their own, let alone being this amazing creature as well. That's right, that's right. But I mean, it's just a, a reflection of how little we know down in the deep sea too, that uh, we've only spotted this thing once before. Um, and what's the great thing is, is that small, cheap camera technology that we have now uh, through, you know, developments like GoPros, which make, uh, you know, small underwater cameras accessible to everyone, also make things more accessible to scientists too. Um, they're not using GoPros necessarily, <laughs> but this sort of technology does uh, head out into the scientific world. So, you know, sometimes science uh, helps uh, contribute to the world uh, to make technology for everyone. Like, uh, you know, Wi-Fi was discovered by scientists looking for a black hole, um, and that science was then able to be applied for Wi-Fi, but the reverse can also happen too when technology becomes more mainstream and is used by a bunch of people just for general fun use. It also makes it more accessible to scientists to use. And so uh, currently... Well, that happened with James Cameron. Yeah. So he didn't. De- he developed all these underwater vehicles to film Titanic and the Abyss, and then he decided that these are great, and scientists realised that these are fantastic underwater vehicles better than any of the scientists had developed because he just, you know, poured all this money into film underwater and now they're using them for scientific endeavours. And I know he's become a big part of them as well, but Mm. he didn't develop them for science. He developed them for media and then it got used for science. Yeah, that's right. So it's amazing stuff. And I think we're only going to find more, um, you know, the underwater cameras that the Australian Antarctic Division's deployed now are about the similar quality as smartphone cameras housed in a secure casing, though, to withstand the high water pressure and sub-zero temperatures that happen kilometres below the sea. Uh, So that means we can now film deeper than ever and we can set them up off of fishing boats um, 
with this portable cheap technology uh, to see what's going on all through our oceans and to kind of discover a bit more about uh, our deep oceans. Because uh, the uh, story goes, we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the deepest of our oceans here on this planet. Uh, because that's how little we've been able to study these uh, these amazing locations because it is hard to get down there, hard to see what's going on and hard to record it too for everyone. Yeah, and when they can get down, it's hard to stay there for any limited amount of time. I know that recently off the east coast of Australia, they found sponges, sea sponges made of glass. Wow, yeah. So just amazing things that just come up from these sorts of research expeditions and things like that. Science is yeah, constantly amazing me. Indeed, indeed. If science constantly amazes you, then uh, make sure you follow Fuzzy Logic because that's what we're here for, to present amazing science every Sunday. As I said, you can find us on Facebook. Just search for Fuzzy Logic. We're also on Twitter at Fuzzy Logic Sci, that's S-C-I. Uh, and uh, we do have a podcast too. You can find us on iTunes or head to Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. Uh, and uh, all our previous episodes are there. Uh, thanks for tuning in for your science on a Sunday. Uh, today is the 28th of October, and in the last two minutes, I thought I'd share some awesome things that have happened on this day in science. Uh, in 1955, it was the birth of Bill Gates, uh, the American businessman who dropped out of Harvard University but co-founded Microsoft, the computer software company that we all know quite well, and is now using his money uh, to help scientists around this world uh, prevent uh, diseases and uh, I think just recently one of the big diseases that he's almost eradicated Jill is polio correct yes very close to eradicating polio and the present I think in one or two countries now that's right and uh, coincidentally on this day in 1914 1914 the birth of Jonas Salk do you know what Jonas Salk did he got really upset about something? Uh, no, he didn't sulk. <laughs> In fact, he took action, and he was the person who developed the first safe and effective vaccine for... Polio. Correct. Uh, his early work was actually research on the influenza virus, uh, but then he developed the vaccine against polio by cultivating three strands of the virus separately in monkey tissue, and uh, the virus was separated from the tissue, stored for a week, killed with formaldehyde, and then tested to make certain it was dead, and a series of three or four injections with the killed virus vaccine was required to give immunity, uh, but uh, did make amazing changes in the world. And so this vaccine is still being used today by Bill Gates there. Um, but the wonderful thing about Jonas Salk and his vaccination was that he didn't patent it. So he didn't make any money from it because he knew that this was for the people, uh, this amazing uh, science discovery. And so just an amazing thing. But speaking of patents, oh, my segues are great today. In 1868, the first patent application was received and recorded by the patent office for one of the uh, most prolific patenters in the US. Jill? I don't know. No, Thomas Edison. Ah! Thomas Edison. And, I know, he was an uh, inventor. Yeah, well, he also the patented taught me that. a lot of things too. Over 1,500 patents in his lifetime, and his first one was for an electrographic vote recorder. So Ooh. there you go. That's your Science on a Sunday here on Fuzzy Logic, 28th of October. I'm Broderick, and Jill's been joining me in the show today. Thanks for joining us, Jill. Thanks, Brad. And thanks for tuning in, listeners. Please tune again next week for Fuzzy Logic right here on 2XXFM.